if you're acquiring an existing asset, the first thing that you need to do is, you know, if you're starting to engage them, you need to get as much raw data and as much information as possible. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always, Debbie, with us on the show. Now, it is a new year. It's 2018, and it's going to be huge, and I'm glad you've all tuned in to listen to my incredible guests. And the reason that I do this show is to educate you about the awesome benefits of investing here in the United States, in real estate, in business, and as an entrepreneur. And hopefully, my guests will inspire you to get off the fence and go out and take massive amounts of action. We're all about educating my guests, sorry, my listeners on this show, and increasing their financial IQ. And you know, this show is all about sharing the knowledge. There's absolutely no BS. And if you do like this show, please give us a review on iTunes. It only takes two seconds to jump on there and show iTunes that we're providing some incredible information for you to go out there and start scaling your business and take action. You can also find me on wherever you sound, wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. And you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. Head over to readgoosens.com and click on the podcast link. It will take you to the video recordings of these shows each and every week. You can see my ugly mug, but you can see the beautiful faces of my guests that I have. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking into today's show. Today in the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Noe Perrin. Noe is a real estate consultant focusing on helping investment firms scale up in terms of their underwriting and financial analysis capabilities. Noe offers his clients a one-stop financial underwriting services, and you can think of Noe's business as like having a personal assistant. We're going to be chatting all about the importance of having the proper financial underwriting systems in your business in order to scale, but in order to attract institutional level investors to your deals. But enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Noe. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And you, Reed? Good, mate. Good. I'm really glad to have you on the show. I know we've um, we've been working together for some time now, and I've been really excited to get you on to just share the knowledge that you have with underwriting because you you know you're one of the most smartest guys I know uh, in the underwriting space. And, and I'm not just saying that to butter you up, but uh, I'm also saying it because you are very knowledgeable about what you do. But before we do dive into the nuts and bolts of today's show, can you rewind the clock and tell us how you made your first ever dollar? Sure. I've always kind of been a little bit of an entrepreneur. And so the first way that I ever made my dollar was uh, selling candy in high school. <laughs> I heard a lot of people do it. And uh, yeah, it was great. Mate, I was interviewing someone last week and uh, he did exactly the same thing. You go to Costco or something, buy it from bulk for 10 cents. You go to school and sell it for 25 cents. You know, you make a profit of 15 cents. It's fantastic. Exactly. (laughs) But tell us a little bit more about your journey, how you got involved in real estate underwriting and financial analysis and particularly, you know, the types of, you know, what what, what intrigued you getting involved in the real estate space? Sure. So my, <clears throat> while I was in, you know, high school and things like that, I was very interested in, I got in obviously from selling candy and I, I was buying 
I was buying, making a profit, and then with the profit, I would go back, buy more, and sell. And so right. I, I was growing the wealth, so to speak. <laughs> and so I got interested in investing. And then what happened, similar to you, is um, I moved to the U.S. to go to college. Right. And so that's actually when I discovered real estate, um, just going into the library. And that's how I found out about it. And so I started at a very low level. But thankfully, I was always interested in investments. So um, I started just, you know, doing an internship at a real estate brokerage, making $100 a week. And it just kind of started growing um, from there. I did a couple other internships and always I was just trying to get better and better at being able to analyze um, deals. And so I did start a property management company while I was in college for a little while. But that was like very hard and property management is very operations intensive. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go back to uh, what I'm good at, which is, you know, being an analyst and running numbers and uh, helping other people um, grow their business through best practices and underwriting. Yeah. And I think that's such, such an important thing that, you know, you've, 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 it sounds like you've gone out and, and, maybe tasted all the different options you can taste in, in real estate in terms of property management, underwriting, you know, uh, working as an intern in financial institution, and then really honing down the fact that your skills are really in and around financial underwriting and, and then developing a business around that. So do you want to talk to us about, you know, let's get into the nuts and bolts right now. Like, like what, let's, let's start at like a 30,000 foot level. Mm-hmm. What is the importance in your mind of having the proper, not just the basics, um, you know, in, in your real estate business, the, you know, the underwriting, but what's, what's it, why is it so important to have an institutional level type of analysis or someone in your team that can an- analyze deals in that way in order to attract capital? Okay. So first of all, it, it's almost counterintuitive, but sometimes it seems that almost the presentation of the numbers a lot of times is just as important as the numbers themselves. Right. Um, because everybody judges a cover by its book, even though they say that they don't. And so, so first of all, you do need to have all your numbers right because institutional and sophisticated investors will uh, challenge your assumptions and they will also underwrite the deals on their own behalf. And so if they're not, if they don't think that what you're saying is going to happen will happen, they're going to question you. And then it's going to be up to you to uh, convince them that no, my assumptions are right. All my calculations are correct. And and this is what we think will happen. And people will begin to trust you just because they know that, you know, your analysis is sound. Right. And so it's, it's just builds trust. Really. I I think that's, that's incredibly important in what you said of, you know, not judging a book by its cover and putting your your best foot forward first. I know that I personally seen some underwritten deals, which looks like, you know, a sophomore at college could have created, <laughs> you know, and I just know that if you try to raise millions and millions of dollars, that's not your best foot forward presenting like a one page spreadsheet on, you know, it's simple and I, I get it, but from a complex underwriting analysis, you need to take, you know, up your game, right? And that's, I guess, where, you know, why I work with people like yourself, Noe, because you help me in my business up my game. So let's talk about the process of how you like to, when you, when you see a deal, what are you doing? What are the steps you're doing in order to, from, from start to finish, 
to truly underwrite the deal and analyze the deal in a way that you've left no stone unturned in order to make sure that your assumptions are correct, in order to make sure that you have a sound investment and that the risk is reduced for your investors? First of all, you need to get as much information from uh, the seller. So I work in development, so it's a little different day to day, but if you're acquiring an existing asset, First thing that you need to do is, you know, if you're starting to engage them, you need to get, get as much raw data and as much information as possible. So you need rent rolls, you're going to need um, operating expenses, copies of the lease, as much information as possible, any reports, just to start. Right. And then um, first, you kind of get an idea of what the property is, what it's like, what kind of tenants are in there and then i kind of like to do kind of like a top-down approach sure which is you start with the with the biggest macro basically so if you're international let's say you'll start okay how is the gdp of the u.s growing you know what are some of the basic trends that's happening okay everything in the u.s is positive well that's good then we'll look at maybe the state at the city level what's happening there and then you start to really drill down into a property. So usually when I'm underwriting a deal with somebody like you, Reed, who does a lot of value add multifamily, um, I, I already have a lot of the context down. Right. Then it starts, you get the rent roll, you start analyzing that. Is there a lot of vacancy? Are a lot of leases expiring? Are they below market rent, above? Do they have a lot of pet fees, things like that? Then you need to look at the expenses. The expenses are going to tell you a lot because either the expenses are really high in some categories. And so that might tell you there's some structural problems or they're really low, which might tell you there's some kind of deferred maintenance. Mm -hmm. And then that's going to inform you for the next stages. You know, when you go to the property and actually visit it, you're going to know what to focus on because it's going to be very hard to go and focus on everything. Right. You just can't do that. Right. Right. Um, so that kind of informs you at the property level. And then it's also very important to look at, uh, the comparable properties and start determining, especially if you're going to do a value add kind of strategy, what are basically like the upgrades or what rental level can I get to given, you know, the age of my building, given the amenities it has, what can I upgrade? What can I not, what makes sense to upgrade on the interior or not? So, so I think that kind of. Yeah, that's that's great. So you're starting just to recap. You're starting at the thirty thousand foot level of any you know market. You, you, you mentioned the United States. You're drilling down into the state level. You're drilling down into the the, the sub market, and then you're drilling down maybe even further to maybe the street level and saying, okay, well yeah. this is north of you know the whatever the five ten and or it's south, and and then from there you're looking at the data from the from the physical property itself, like the rent roll, like the P and L. And do you want to just maybe um, summarize maybe the top five things you look for in a rent roll and a PL in order to maybe, maybe they're red flags. In the rent roll, I guess it's always if there's too much vacancy, or also if you're seeing that um, leases are not um, going like 12 months, basically, mm -hmm. or you see sometimes in the rent roll data, it depends on if, how much information they collect, but you'll see the lease start and the lease end. Yep. If you're seeing things that have no lease end, and also if you're seeing lease starts that are really far back, it probably means that they have a lot of month-to-month -month leases. Mm -hmm. 
um, or tenants that renew and they don't sign paperwork. So that's telling you it can be a good thing because it tells you people are staying for a long time, but it can also be a bad thing because they're doing month to month leases. It's not a good management uh, practice. On the expense and, and P&L side, I guess just you got to go line item by line item and just see what sticks out and just mostly that. Really. Right. And I know that sometimes operators or particularly, you know, folks that have had the property for a long period of time, maybe sub, uh, classing CapEx dollars in repairs and maintenance or in certain line items, which which you as the business owner or the, the potential investor, your business plan is to nullify or reduce those repairs and maintenance because you're going to put hopefully a lot of CapEx into the, into the budget. So do you ever That's see true. where you can reallocate dollars? You know, say, okay, well, this particular property, this person's got like you know two or three lines of painting or plumbing repairs or something like that, where you you could potentially but group those and put them in the capex budget and, and say okay, I'm going to, with my capex dollars, I'm going to address those issues like paint the exterior of the building, deal with the plumbing issues, and then so on a on a, on a long term basis, I don't have that ongoing um, pain in my pain in my ass essentially, <laughs> you know, because it reduces yeah. those those year to year expenses. Not only that, but that might be a good strategy to actually increase the value of the building because right. if you have some capex uh, expenses in your operating expenses, um, then your net operating income is being artificially reduced, mm -hmm. and most multifamilies being um, valued based on the NOI divided by the cap rate. Um, so if you can get that NOI a little bigger by reducing some expenses and re removing some operating expenses and categorizing them as capital improvements, yep. um, you may be able to add value to the, to the property. And, and you, you raise a great point because a lot of people in today's hot market and particularly multifamily are talking about en entry cap rates versus exit cap rates. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you just you made a really good point that you know, your, your, your entry cap rate is obviously the, the which is for people out there who don't know, is NOI divided by um, the purchase price, right? And if your NOI is low, then obviously your entry cap rate is low. But how much emphasis do you put on that entry cap rate from a business um, model and a business plan point of view, knowing that you may have other comps which may be well above that particular asset? So obviously it's going to depend on your strategy a little bit. But so if you're buying something where you're buying it as is and it's fully renovated and there's nothing, there's no value to be added, then the, cap, the going in cap rate is pretty significant. However, when we're doing, you know, these kinds of deals that let's say have a little bit more juice to them or profit potential, mm -hmm. the going in cap rate can be a little bit misleading because if you're buying an asset that has a lot of vacancies, mismanaged, you know, it's barely profitable, then of course the NOI, the NOI is going to be low and you're going in cap rate is going to be also low. But so what you might want to look at is say the stabilized cap rate. So mm -hmm. what is the cap rate after, you know, we raise rents, lower um, the expenses, and that typically is going to be much higher than when you're going in. Right. And so, yeah, it, it kind of depends, but if you're doing value add, it's less important. It's more important you look at what would your cap rate be two years from now? Say. Right, and and then would you then compare that cap rate once stabilized to say the market? I, I surely that would have to have some correlation, right? Uh, yes. So 
you know, real estate is becoming more and more efficient and it, which means it's harder and harder to find deals. Right. Even if there's a lot of work to be done, you should be compensated for that. So you should have a higher cap rate when it's all said and done Right. versus say the average based on what you're going in price was. Um, so yes, it should be at least, you know, 1%, maybe 2% higher. Um, after you stabilized. After you stabilized because right. it's a lot of work. You know, you need to put in, if you're doing rehab, typically that gets paid for in cash, not in debt. Right. There's a lot of things. Um, no, it's, and we're going to get into those risk factors and, and stuff like that. But when you determine, you know, going in cap rates versus exiting cap rates, you know, because again, we're, we're, we're underwriting these deals. Uh-huh. Is there a rule of thumb that you like to use in terms of cap rate expansion? Everyone talks about this word cap rate expansion, cap rate expansion, because no one knows yeah. where the market's going to be in you know five or six years time. And we haven't really had a quote unquote recession yet since 2008. So everyone's sort of a little bit cautious. What's your rule of thumb when it comes to cap rate expansion on the exit of, a, of an asset? Right. Um, so this is a very interesting question because obviously interest rates uh, are rising right now and mm-hmm. maybe we're getting late into the business cycle. And, and I work in development and a development project takes two, maybe three years to, to do. Um, so I'm always fighting with my coworkers about <laughs> this. They're like, cap rates don't move. I'm like, no, we, this is something that's very serious because even if you add value to the property, if, if cap rates go up by a lot, basically the valuations are going to come down. And so hopefully you add enough value that even if the cap rates go down, it kind of evens out, but it's no guarantee. So right now I'm, I'm pricing in, uh, it, it kind of depends, but usually about 1%, 1% more than the cap rate today, I think is a good estimation. 100, 100 basis points, right? Over a period of points in the next say three years. Um, what I would do is just try to, there are different estimates out there for what the Fed funds rate is. So right now I believe that's at 1.75. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think it will go up 1%, if you think interest rates are going to go up by 1%, just assume cap rates will go yep. up by 1%, 1%. Because there is a correlation there between cap rates and, and interest rates. Yeah. And, and what is that correlation for, for, the, for the layman investor who's listening to this mm-hmm. show that you know, you got to look at interest rates and where they're tracking versus cap rates. Why, why is there a correlation for those people out there who don't really um, understand? So basically, this is cool. Uh, I'm actually doing a master's program and we cover this, which is good. <laughs> um, so investors in general have uh, a wide range of investments that they can choose, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of capital is risk averse and, and they buy uh, treasury bonds, which basically pay an interest rate. Um, so for, to entice the investor to go from the treasury notes, which is risk-free to real estate, they need to be paid extra. They need to be paid a real estate risk premium. Mm-hmm. And the stock market also has a stock market risk premium. So in, in the big scheme of things, basically if that risk premium for real estate stays about the same, every time that the real estate, um, interest rate, I mean, sorry, every time the treasury rates or interest rates go up the, so let's say they go up by 1%, mm-hmm. everything else should track the same and also go up right. by 1%, that required rate of return. Um, so that's kind of- And, and, like, why, and why would the treasuries 
be shifting over time? What's what's how does that correlate to you know you're talking about risk adverse capital? You know, at, you know, look at the treasury rate of one point nine percent, and that could, you think it could go up to one two point three or whatever it might be. What's forcing that to go up? Which is because this all obviously leads back to our real estate investing question about exit cap rates. Because whatever's forcing that up is obviously going to force the cap rates up, and also enforce interest rates up, which forces cap rates up. So, like, you got to nail down into why would that why would that be shifting over time for those people out there who don't know? Why would I guess fundamentally what's driving everything is uh, interest rates, and so interest rates move uh, based on the Federal Reserve here in the US because they control the money supply. And so their biggest concern is they're very averse to inflation, which is basically when the purchasing power of your dollar is eroded. So you think essentially when prices increase too much. And so the way that they counter that is usually economic expansion occurs through businesses borrowing money to invest, mm-hmm. you know, to build a power plant, which creates jobs. Right. Um, But as a result of that, there's lots of new money entering the system, which kind of devalues the value of money. Um, So the Fed will kind of try to counteract this inflation by raising interest rates Mm -hmm. so that businesses and real estate investors will borrow uh, less or more conservatively. And so that new supply of money, and let's call it almost an overshoot or overheating of the economy um, gets tempered. Right. Yes, no, uh, that's, 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 that's a very, very good explanation. And then for everyone is it's essentially to summarize is it's, it's the Fed's way of curbing inflation and yeah. trying to, res, to, to restrict businesses from if it costs more to, in, to, to invest because your interest rates are higher, you may not be as bullish on investing. So just controlling that that inflation price and, and the growth of the economy, essentially. Right. Yes. And also to give you a very simple answer. Um, as to when interest rates rise, why does real estate typically valuations come down? Because it's more expensive to borrow debt and real estate is, you know, 50, 80% um, funded by debt most of the time. So if your debt is more expensive, you need to buy a cheaper piece of real estate to still make the numbers work. Right. So, and then there's, there's another, you know, we will get into some academic stuff here because I, lo- yeah. I, I, I love getting into the, to the, I'm getting into the, the, the weeds, the nuts and bolts, but yeah. the, um, the difference between cap rate, and we've got, and this goes back to our cap rate question, the difference between cap rates and interest rates. And I know on development projects, it's very important to have a good spread, right, between your yeah. development cap, and we can talk about development cap in a second, but just in terms of existing multifamily assets, in order to est- establish cash flow, what is that spread between you know where the treasuries and you know where the the ten year note is and, and where, where where banks are lending and where you want to be with your going in cap rate or your stabilized cap rate, for example? Um, in development, for example, it's one hundred and fifty basis points, so one point five percent. If you can get that much spread, I think you're going to cash flow fine. Obviously, the more the better. Right. But if you're borrowing at four and a half percent, you know, you should have at least a six percent cap. Yep. Six and a half, you know, would be better. Now that's on development or is that on existing multifamily? Because there's, there's I would two. Say, I would say on existing as well, because okay. at the end of the day, um, in development for multifamily, um, the strategy can be to sell, but the strategy can be to build, use a construction loan, which is pretty expensive. It'll be like eight, 10, 12 percent. 
mm-hmm. debt and then refinance into a, into a cheaper loan. Right. That would be like a permanent loan. Which would then uh, cash flow and which would then be able to, to, to produce the returns for investors. Now, this exactly. is all very interesting and, 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 and very important stuff when, you're un, when you are underwriting deals because it goes back to my original question of entry cap rates on existing multifamily. It is, it is based on NOI. And if you, for example, have a 5% going in cap rate, but you know that the business model is to get it to a stabilized of a 6% or a 6.5% in, in a year's time or two years' time, then that fixed rate of, of interest rate of 4.5%, there's that spread, right? And, that's, and it goes back to my original question, Noe, of how do you view those going in cap rates and making sure you're not like, oh, 5%, no, yuck. But you've, got to be, you've also got to be confident on your business model that you know where you can push yeah. that NOI to in t- a year's time or 18 months' time to get that stabilized cap rate. So mm-hmm. in going in cap rate, stabilized cap rate, exit cap rate, interest rates, are the sort of four major things that you need to understand from a, from a business plan model to, in order to ensure that you, you know, have capital preservation for your investors and all that sort of good stuff. Um, do you want to add anything to that, what, what I just said? No, I, w- I would just say, you know, bouncing off of you, just you need to have these data points. Right. And so if you don't have them all, then you're somewhat blind. And, but it also goes back to your uh, what I asked the first question, which is why is it so important to have an institutional level model and have those questions and those assumptions? Because if you can't yeah. answer those questions from an investor uh, with, you know, okay, this is the going in cap rate, this is, but this is the stabilized and then this is the exit and this is where interest rates are at. And we're getting, you know, it help, it's, it's all about risk at the end of the day. And I guess this segues into my next question now is, what are the big risk items from lending uh, to, we talked about, you know, obviously going in cap rates. I think we've covered that to death. Uh, but but what, what are other, you know, things that you can pull on the levers in order to reduce risk in your underwriting? And then essentially reduce risk on the overall deal and, and the capital in that deal. Um, that's a really good question. Um, so like lots of real estate investors say, you make your money when you buy. Right. So you got to make sure you're buying hopefully below market so that if you do need to get out, you can get out and maybe just have a few scratches, but nothing too serious, not mm-hmm. lose a limb. Um, I think in today's environment, it's really, I guess you need to double check that you can get the rents that you're saying that you're going to get because that that's really the, the driver. And then I think it's the exit cap rates. Um, it's huge. Make sure, you know, what we like to do, um, where I work is we do a lot of sensitivity studies. So we'll say, let's say we think maybe we can get out at six or maybe we think we can get $100,000 in rent per month. We need to run a scenario where let's say we could only get 80000 and per month and we thought that cap rates went up slightly more than what we anticipated. Uh, where are we going to be? And so we'll, we'll create like a matrix, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like cap rates really low, really high. Our income is really high, really low and, and create some bounds and just analyze and make sure that in even in the downside case, you're not losing money. Right. And I guess that's really important for all those people out there listening is establishing your sensitivity analysis. And, and you know, that's why having a basic one-page one spreadsheet is just a snapshot of one scenario. Investors like to say, okay, what's my debt? That's maybe the best scenario. What's the, what's the worst case scenario? What happens if my vacancy spikes and my NOI, you know, dips by 
1% a month or whatever it might be. How does that look? What happens when my exit rate, exit cap rate expands? How does that affect the investor's return on capital? And that's really important, right, Noe? Mm-hmm. It goes back to what we were saying before. Having that professionalism in your underwriting, having those sensitivity analysis as a, as a display in order to give a peace of mind to your investors, right? And I'll tell you one thing. Um, a lot of people's financial models only have um, straight line assumptions. Mm-hmm. Basically means, you, let's say you have your rent growth and you make it 2%. It'll be 2% the whole way and we'll put our expense ratio and it'll be you know 38% straight. Right. Um, sometimes it's good to, you know, like you said, we got to create stress tests. Mm-hmm. So something that we've done together even is, is have assumptions that change over time right. where, you know, in the first two months, in the first two years, say, maybe we have a little bit elevated vacancy and then it stabilizes or, you know, let's model what would happen if we had a recession and then a recovery. Right. How does that look? Yeah. I think How that's, that look and things yeah, like that. And, and it goes back to that judging a book by its cover. If you can present, you know, scenario one, which is the best case scenario, scenario two, scenario three, you know, a handful of scenarios to an investor straight off the bat, professional, you look professional, uh, you've answered their questions in terms of the risk of, of what's going to happen to my capital if something goes wrong. So there's, a, there's, there's that piece and you give peace of mind that you know what you're doing. And it's not like, okay, let's look at all these scenarios and I've analyzed all these scenarios because I don't know. Because at the end of the day, no, like it's a projection, right? Like this is, we don't have a crystal ball. We're not trying to create a crystal ball. And we're just saying, this is our opinion of where the market's going. And this is our sensitivity analysis. And, and again, goes back to that professionalism, right? 100%. Yeah. I agree. Cool, man. So what about with the financing you know, side of it? getting lower leverage and making sure you're not too over leveraging a deal because that can also add a lot of risk to the, to the deal as well. Like you mentioned before, you know, we talked about why interest rates go up in order for the feds to curb, you know, your growth in an economy. So if you're at like 85% leverage, that's kind of scary, right? And you've got to look at that side of the coin as well and how, and how that could potentially affect the deal moving forward. Yeah, hundred percent. You got to think um, there's two big things, I guess, in, in the loans. Um, one of them being if your loan is a fixed rate loan or a floating rate loan. So if it's a floating rate loan, if interest rates go up, your payments are going to go up. Right. Um, which you could find yourself in a pickle, not being able to make payments. <laughs> Good old pickle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hate pickle juice. So. <laughs> what about a pickleback shot, man? Come on. It's good. <laughs> After a long day at the office, underwriting those deals, you've got to have a few pickleback shots at the bar. But sorry, I interrupted. Keep going. <laughs> um, so there's that. And then there's also leverage. And then also the absolute amount uh, that you're borrowing. So like you mentioned, if you're borrowing 80, 85% of your loan um, of the purchase price on, on debt, A, your payments are more, B, you own more. Uh, there's more debt on the deal. So let's say you're 85% levered. If prices go down 15%, that's it. You're out of the game. You, you lose all your money. Now, if right. you went into 50% debt, now prices would have to come down 50% for you to be wiped out. And getting foreclosed on is, is literally the worst thing that could happen to you because it, once you've lost all your money, that's it. You can't get it back. And right. so it's much harder to recover from a loss. Um, and, and I, I will add to that is, is there's obviously you know, being quote unquote underwater and, and, and un- yeah. what does underwater mean? And underwater means that you are, the value of the loan is more than what the property is worth. 
Now on single family, it can be really, you know, that's why single family can actually can be a little bit more risky if you're having it as a rental portfolio because you have one tenant. If that tenant moves out and the value of that asset goes down, you could be underwater. And that's why multifamily or commercial real estate is viewed as a business and they, they drive the valuation or back, back, based on that NOI like we've just been talking about. But again, that NOI leads to how much, you know, you've got to look at your debt service coverage ratio. And that's another thing that banks look at, right? And so you've got to, if you're, if your debt service coverage ratio, which means your the, the remaining money left over or your NOI divided by your debt services, if there's a gap there, or typically banks like to see around 15 to 25%, then you know that your NOI is safe and uh, so your cash flow is safe and in order to pay back the debt on the property and so you don't then lose the property in in, in foreclosure or something like that right and something about being underwater there's there's some commercial loans where if you're underwater where the property is worth less than what you owe um in some cases that does trigger like a technical default right and that's just something you want to avoid obviously. yeah exactly Exactly. You know, it, it, it's something that is, we talk about recourse and non-recourse debt and how that works. Yeah, and yeah. we talk about a whole podcast about the differences yeah. between the between the two of them. But no, I know that you are very, very extremely knowledgeable about what you do. And, and I, we've been working together for some time now. But where can people, you know, reach out to you? I know you've got your own podcast. Sorry, not podcast, your own YouTube channel where you educate people on what you do. Where can they reach you? Sure. So the best way to reach me is uh, honestly through YouTube. If you want to learn more about real estate, I have some um, free videos that teach you a little bit of underwriting and I'm working on a course too. Um, so I guess just go to the show notes and go to the YouTube video and find my name and search it on YouTube. Also on Instagram, if you want to send me um, a message. And yeah, so I help, you know, people like Reed, um, developers, other guys who are, you know, doing syndications, who are who are buying apartment complexes like that, and I kind of help them um, on the underwriting, help them, give them a model, a financial, a spreadsheet, or that is complex, that has everything that they need, and in some cases, I also do some investment presentations and, and underwriting, uh, because like we said, professionalism. The looks is is very important, especially if you're raising capital, and the analysis needs to be sound, or you could find yourself in a pickle. Damn it, one of those pickles again. <laughs> but Noe, at the end of every show, I always like to ask my guests to give me their top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Yes. Let's do it. All right, mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Um, daily journaling, first daily thing in journaling. the morning. Yeah, what do you, what do you use? Are you uh, a top, you know, a to-do list type of guy or are you just like getting stuff out of your head onto paper? So I do a little bit of both. So I like to just, you know, write about, I guess, your feelings, your the different ideas that you have. I like to do it early in the day because otherwise later in the day you get so bombarded by information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, and to-do lists and calendars and things like that. You no, got to organize your mind and yourself first. And I think yes. it's so important that you just said you've got to organize your mind because getting it out of your mind on the paper means it, it declutters the, you know, the, your mind and it enables you to take on more 
stuff because it's on piece of paper. You've written it down. Okay, I'm going to come back to it. Oh yeah, I need to do that thing. And you've reminded yourself to do it. You don't have to have the stress of constantly having it in your mind, which then clutters, you know, your, your focus and all that sort of stuff. Um, what, what is the, and who's you, the most, and you'll forget. Well, exactly. You'll forget it. You know, when, when, <laughs> writing it down on a post-it note, but having a place where it's consistent and you're doing it every day helps people and helps me is help my success dramatically by doing it. I started journaling two, two years ago and I, it's, you know, just helped me just really prioritize my day. And it also just, it's a nice little win. Like when you cross off a to-do list, something off a to-do list, I should say, it's like a little reward for you. It's like, yes, I got, look, I've, I've achieved six things today. That's really awesome. Six major things that I wanted to do. And as the time goes on, I've found that those things that you achieve in every day get larger and larger and nearly become goals. You're like, oh, wow, I achieved that goal this week. That's fantastic. So I always talk about goals to to-do list and how you get, how you make the jump. But, um, but no, who has been the most influential person in your career to date? It would probably, it would probably be the author of, of this book called, um, Awaking the Financial Genius Inside of You, mm -hmm. because it was the first, it was one of the first books that I read on real estate and it was so it just like opened my mind and I love the title as well. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I, I would attribute it to him. Right. What's the most influential tool in your business? And it may be Excel, but maybe you have another cool tool, whether it be hardware or software that helps you grow your business and helps you keep on top of things. Um, it's hard for me not to say Excel. <laughs> because Excel is like, it's a blank for me, you know, for me, it's a blank sheet of paper where you can create anything. I've created spreadsheets that track, you know, my life goals, I've created spreadsheets that manage my stock portfolio or real estate. So it's got to be Excel just because it's so versatile. You're like, you're like an artist, mate. It's your, it's your canvas and you go in and create your, your, your masterpiece, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of, it, Excel is almost like uh, programming. There's just right. so many things you can do with it. hundred percent. And that's the power of having someone in your team if you're not really good at Excel or you don't understand it as much, it's, it's, it's why having people like Noe on board, you know, you don't have to be knowledgeable, you need to be somewhat knowledgeable about Excel, but you can hire people to, again, increase your real estate business and scale up and have great underwriting models in order to attract that capital. So if you're not too financially versed in Excel, then ask people like Noe. Noe, what's been the biggest failure in your career to date and what did you learn from that failure? Um, so the biggest misstep that I had was back when I was, um, doing property management, um, the way how it, it was arranged is basically I had my broker and then I was running my company under them, essentially, um, almost like a franchise business. Mm -hmm. Um, but I got in business with the wrong kind of people. So <laughs> that would be my biggest lesson is you got to be really careful about who you do business with. Right. And if you bring somebody into your business, um, I would highly recommend that you do it in a way so that it doesn't affect everything else that you've done prior. So if you have an operating business, don't bring in a partner into the business that's already operating, create a, uh, a new venture with them and, and make sure that they're invested. And if you do an LLC agreement, make sure that 
um, if somebody, for example, doesn't do any more work that you can buy them out or, or mm -hmm. something like that, you always got to have an exit plan. And there's yeah, books on that. So I think that's so, so true. And just making sure that you have all the back end stuff, like your legal documentation in, in order to make sure that if something goes awry, you have those levers to pull um, in order to either buy out a partner or, or get to conflict resolution. I think it's, it's really, really yeah. important. Or even then, if sometimes it's just somebody, you know, they die or they get incapacitated, you know, what's what's going to happen? And so there's a book called Business Buy Buyout Agreement. Mm -hmm. um, and that has like everything. And that was a really great book. Fantastic. And Noe, I know we, we already just covered where people can reach you, but just for one last time before the end of the show, where can people reach you, your, your, your website or, or YouTube and or email address if people want to reach out and, and have a chat to you about, you know, getting you involved in their day-to-day their -day underwriting um, in order to scale their business? Sure. Um, so if you want to reach me uh, by email, I'll, I, I would recommend you go on, on Reed's uh, YouTube video and just so that you can get my name Noe Perrin you can find me on YouTube I also have a website noeperrin.com and uh on Instagram as well I'm fantastic there. fantastic well I want to thank you Noe for jumping on the show today I've been really looking forward to getting you on the show and I just want to quickly summarize what we spoke about because some of the big takeaway items for me just listening to you talk I think would be you know at you know, having a really incredible presentation on the front end, it sounds easy and, and all that sort of stuff, but having a business plan and making it uh, where it's audible, maybe audible or not, not audible, but automatic um, in a systems process type of way where you can, you know, print off your um, underwriting in a way that is creates a business plan that you can present to an investor. And, and what you said, you don't judge a book by its cover. It's really important to lead with that first, uh, your best foot forward. I think also another big takeaway that I've written down here is the, you know, the, the sensitivity analysis, and it goes back to that professionalism and making sure you've, you know, uncovered every, you know, rock or stone in order to show an investor uh, in your financial underwriting, you know, you've thought of all the the possibilities. And again, it's not a, you know, we create these models not to be a, a, a crystal ball, but in order to project. Uh, our projection of the future. And I guess the last thing is also understanding, you know, the difference between cap rates and exit cap rates and entry cap rates and the difference between interest rates and what forces that that up, um, which is a big uh, defining moment or not a big defining factor when you come to exit a deal and how the profits are affected uh, for the investors and, and understanding what is driving interest rates and how you as an investor need to reduce risk in your underwriting. Um, did, I, did I leave anything out? Uh, no, I think that summarizes very well what we were talking about. Cool, man. Well, again, thank you so much for dropping by. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. All right, Reed. Look forward to it. Well, there you have it. Another great episode jam-packed with some incredible actionable advice and, and takeaway tips. Uh, there was some just some incredible golden nuggets on there. And I want you to go up onto a YouTube channel or head to my website, which is reedgoosens.com. Uh, click on the podcast uh, tab and that will take you to all the show notes from today's show. If you do want to reach out to Noe, remember it's noeperrin.com. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge because that's what we're all about here on this show. We want to continue to grow your financial IQ and hopefully my guests are inspiring you to go out there and take some action. Until next week, we'll do it all again. So take care, be safe and remember, happy investing. Happy investing.